If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and you wave to them. They'll put one in your hands. It'll be marked to our passage. And then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift to you today from the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, Christians who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope in the face of death. But if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of a tr- archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these verses. We thank you for the comfort that is bound up in them. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit and through your word on this incredible thing, this incredible future event known as the rapture of the church and the means by which we, some generation of Christians, is going to see you face to face in this way. Bless now our time in the word, Lord. Minister to us. Speak to us individually. We know your Holy Spirit's able to do that. And continue to build doctrine, continue to build uh, a foundation of theology within our lives this morning as we study as well. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Over the last four uh, Sunday mornings, we've been studying what the Bible refers to as the last times or the the end times or last days, and it refers to that period of time, uh, the condition of the world immediately prior to uh, Jesus' return for the rapture of the church to remove it from the world, and, and then followed by a seven-year tribulation period, and then ultimately Jesus' second coming at the end of that a thousand-year reign or a kingdom reign of Jesus that follows that. And ultimately, everything gives way to a new heaven and a new earth that is untouched, uh, whether us human beings, whether this world, whether the universe, completely untouched by the awful fall and the consequences of the fall of Adam and Eve in that ancient garden of Eden. And this morning, I want to conclude our short kind of prophecy update by examining this future event that is known in the Bible as the rapture. And I know I've referred to it repeatedly through the last four weeks, sometimes a frustration, I think, to some of you. And, uh, and, but, you know, most of us in the room know what this event is. We know something of it from the Bible. But then there's another group within uh, in the room that this is something entirely new. And I knew by the time we got to the end of the series, I would uh, jump in and kind of uh, belatedly uh, educate related uh, to it. Um, it is a future event in history, and it is... Uh, more than an event, it provides us this thing called the rapture of the church with a needed hope that God knows that we will need as Christians in the messiness of the world morally and spiritually, militarily and so forth at uh, the last days. Timothy, ap- uh, ap- or Paul uh, aptly describes it in his letter to uh, Titus as the blessed hope. Now, the Bible teaches that there's a great tribulation that is going to come upon this world one day. Jesus describes it quite graphically, but accurately. And he declared in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, for then there shall be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now, that's remarkable because the world's been through a lot of tribulation. 
And unless those days were shortened, Jesus declared, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And it's Jesus' way of saying some very difficult times are coming in human history. And when they come, you won't want to be a part of what's going to happen. The great tribulation period is a time when God pours out his wrath upon this world. And it will be a world at that point that's made up of people who are living in rebellion to him, willingly, knowingly, they have rejected him, his commandments, they've rejected his salvation, his savior, they've rejected Jesus. Now, this time is spoken of as a time of God's wrath, the great tribulation. First Timothy chapter five, verse nine, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Revelation chapter 6, which is the beginning of this tribulation period uh, that uh, we're speaking about, the breaking of the seals that constitute the initiating of that wrath. And the kings of the earth were told, and great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And then they said to the mountains, as they're in the middle of this wrath of this judgment, they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him, that is God the Father, and from the face or the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of his, that is Jesus' wrath, has come and who is able to stand. Now, in the original language of the New Testament, uh, which is Greek, in the verses in which we've just spoken of, these verses, the word that's used for our English word wrath is the Greek word orge. And uh, very often, I think many kind of English-speaking people, we use the term anger and wrath somewhat interchangeably. And so if someone is uh, angry, we'll use that word. But if they're really angry, then we'll say that they are filled with wrath. And we view one word as kind of a stronger version of the other. But that's not how those words are used in the Bible. Anger which is most often translated thumos, the Greek word thumos, this is an agitation. This is a quick flash of anger. Uh, this is what was known as an Irish temper or uh, the kind of person that is hot-headed where uh, anger just comes out of the emotion of the moment or the circumstances and it flashes and then it uh, disappears as quickly as it, it did appear. That's not the word that is used here of God's wrath. The word that's used for God's wrath concerning the great tribulation is the word orge, and it refers to something that is built up over a long period of time in a person's mind and, uh, and something that has been building and building inside of them, oftentimes within their heart as well. And so orge is longer lasting than thumos. And because this orge, this wrath, has been building up over a long period of time, it takes much longer in its expression. It'll be much more patient and much more thorough in its expression. Uh, this orge, this wrath, is not satisfied with just kind of a quick flash, and, and it will stay filled with wrath long enough to do what needs to be done to correct the wrongdoing that the person is orge or, or wrathful related to. There is no hot-headedness at all related to this wrath, as the word is used. Now, the Bible teaches that God watches the world. He watches everything about it. Uh, 
He knows everything that's going on. He knows everything about my life. He knows me inside and out. He was with me and witnessed everything I did. He heard everything I said every second of last week. But what is true of me is also true of all 7 billion people in the world. God knows everything. He knows everything that goes on in open meetings, in secret meetings, what politicians are doing in rooms that are supposed to be bug-free and confidential. He knows what goes on in every restaurant. He knows what goes on in every hotel. He knows what goes on in every living room of every home, of every apartment. There is nothing that he does not watch and witness. And the Bible says that not only does he watch the world, but then he ponders, he thinks about and gives consideration to what it is that he is witnessing. Proverbs chapter 5 verse 21 brings it out, for the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of man's paths. And the word ponder means to observe, it means to weigh mentally. And so he watches He observes closely, he weighs, nothing escapes his temptation, and the word ponder is something like this, hmm. So he sees all of it, and he's processing all of it. And you can imagine what it is that he sees as he watches this world as a holy, loving God. All of the wickedness witnesses every single bit of it, I mean, you think about last week we went through the list of the different things that are going to characterize, you know, the world in the last days morally and so forth. And you could get so graphic in all of it. He he witnesses every sexual crime against a woman or against a man or against a child. He witnesses the, you know, today Thailand is known now and they're having great problems over there, but the moneymaker for it is the sex trade, people going over there to have sex with children and so forth. I mean, he, this and, in, 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 uh, you know, the sex trades and ch- sex slaves all over the world now and how lucrative it is and how many people are being taken advantage where this person is making all of the money here at the expense of people who are essentially slaves in this situation that can be an economic one. But he, he, wa- he watches all of it, all of the wickedness. He watches all of the witnesses, all of the rebellion against him and his word, all of the sin, all of the fist that is uh, shaken toward him, all of the blasphemy that's directed toward him and higher education, so-called in our nation, all of the victims of man's nonsense and rebellion, and he witnesses all of the persecution of his children that go on all over the world. And to be a perfectly holy God, to ponder the ways of sinful man, is going to produce an emotion inside of you. And that emotion is wrath, but it's a righteous wrath. And one day he will rise up and he will pour out his wrath upon the world, a wrath that has been building against the sin and the pride and the rebellion of man for thousands of years. And when God looks at the human condition today and when he ponders, one of the things that he's looking for in his pondering is what the Apostle Paul described by the Spirit of God as the fullness of the Gentiles where God knows that there will come a point in time where there will be one person, some certain person somewhere in the world that God knows, and only he knows it, knows will constitute the final person that will put their faith in his son before the beginning of the tribulation period. And once that person is saved, then begins the, there is then the rapture of the church and the moving forward now in the seven-year tribulation period. And so help me, if you are that last Gentile and you are sitting in this room, I'm getting a name, hold on just a second. I will get you in a headlock and we will not let you go until we... The Lord gives you a free will. We will not recognize your free will and salvation. But that will happen. Maybe somewhere in the Sudan, 
maybe somewhere in Russia, somewhere, somewhere, somewhere. That person will accept the Lord, fullness of the Gentiles, and then we will be removed of the rapture of the church, and then begins the tribulation uh, period. And so God's, his wrath is uh, building. Now, I, sometimes I think some, in the, within the kind of insulation of the United States of America, we are in a bit of a bubble. We notice that everyone wants to come here, and very few people are eager to leave here for someplace else uh, in, in the world. It's a very, very good place to live, and it is a, a relatively safe place to live in a world that is very, very dangerous and becoming more and more dangerous. And sometimes I think that it's inconceivable to people, and especially we're, we're in the bubble that we're in and you, we're walking around with our life, uh, life is good t-shirts and jackets and, you know, we've got a whole store that puts that stuff out and everything, and hey, go ahead and wear it. But um, it isn't inconceivable to me that on the trajectory of the world as we see it today, that it will ultimately hit a place where, uh, man, where mankind will begin to look at his fellow man and to say, the only hope for this world is that God comes back and judges it. Or where we look at the world and say, wickedness has become so rampant and the victims are piled so high and so deep that people that don't even believe in God will look and say, I don't know if there is a God, but if there is a God, he ought to come back and judge this place. For some people, that seems as if it's a kind of an inconceivable thing that it could never happen. I never view it that way. And not only biblically, because I know what the Bible says about man, and it's really accurate in terms of my life, and I have a hunch it's very, very accurate related to your life. I think behind the very thin veneer of civilization, and I'm thankful for that thin veneer because it makes life wonderful with one another, you take that away and we're animals. And this world can turn on a dime on the basis of a shortage of water, on the shortage of food, an economic meltdown that makes the last one look like nothing. And sometime you're going to have to pay all that debt that the Western world and the rest of the world is jacked up and standard of livings and so forth. This thing can happen very, very quickly where this is it basically debases down into essentially gangs, clans, and all kinds of other things where life is miserable, wickedness is, and violence is rampant, and it is commonplace, and people will look and say, uh, this place needs judgment, and if there is a God, he needs to come back and straighten it out. If you're still in a place where you look at it in your life and life experience and your perspective, I'm not putting it down, and you look and say, that's inconceivable to me. I can't see how that could ever happen. Um, good for you. I'm glad for you uh, that you can do that. I can't do that. Um, I remember a few years ago when, and this is a silly illustration, but one time they had a shortage of cabbage patch dolls at Christmas time. And what human beings were willing to do to one another in the store over a cabbage patch doll, we're not even talking about Venezuela, where right now today while we're in this room, they, the news articles are telling us they are crying when they see food just to see food. That's how hard uh, their situation has put them in, in terms of government and Chavez and, and, and what it is that he introduced into that nation. And uh, even wasn't that many years ago where toilet paper became short for some kind of a reason. And boy, you'd have thought that it was worth a million dollars, people fighting themselves every Christmas time, you know, uh, you know, maybe Walmart or something, they have these specials that are only so many TVs or only so many are at this price. And then all you got to do is go on later on the day and all the videos of people punching themselves out to save 150 bucks on a TV and they're all there to load up. No, I think things can get pretty rough around here. 
especially when it's survival and when it's food and when it's water and when, and when wickedness, the wickedness of man's heart, it reaches that tipping point where it is in a greater majority than those who are uh, righteous or those that are uh, eager to obey God's commandments. But at any rate, uh, so it will be. And that fullness of the Gentiles will occur, and then God will pour out his judgment. The world might be just prospering. Uh, money, hand over fist, I don't know, and still be living in such a wickedness and rebellion against God uh, that it's such an affront to him that even if things don't collapse on a material level here, he would look at it, this wrath would be in his heart, and he will pour that judgment out upon the earth. And you can read all about that judgment and this expression of God's wrath in Revelation chapters uh, 6 through 19. And when you read those chapters, you're reading history in advance, and in reading that history in advance, you will learn one thing. I do not want to be here for this. I don't want to be any part of what it is that this wrath that God is pouring out. Now, what is the rapture? Very simply, the rapture is the means by which God has chosen to remove his people, that is Christians, from the world prior to pouring out his righteous judgment upon it. And I want us to notice a few things in our passage here concerning that rapture. First of all, there is something that we're going to see at the moment of the rapture, we're told in verse 16. And what we will see is that the Lord Jesus himself will descend from heaven. And that is who we will immediately see at this moment in time. And Jesus will be returning for us, just as he promised in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, that is heaven, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, he said to the disciples and to us. And if I go to prepare a place for you... I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, taking us into the glory of heaven. Jesus currently sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He will rise, arise from that throne, and then he will descend from heaven to meet us in the air. And that's what we're going to see at the time of the rapture. There's also something that we will hear in verse 16. Jesus is then going to shout something, and the word that's used for shout there is used uh, of an authoritative utterance. It's an order. It's the Greek word that is used for a military officer uh, giving a command to a subordinate. We don't know what he's going to say to us at this moment of the rapture. It might be something like, let's get you out of there. I don't know what it'll be, but it'll be terrific, and he's going to communicate something to us. There'll then be the added communication of an archangel, and in the mix there's going to be the trumpet of God. Trumpets are mentioned in the Old Testament as an expression of joy, rejoicing, festivity, also as a communication uh, associated with a great victory. And so everything in this description of the rapture points to what is, as the world looks at it, I mean, as, as heaven looks at it, they are very, very excited about this particular event and a lot going on around it. And of course, it, of course, there would be that excitement because Jesus is now being joined with his bride, uh, the church, at that moment in time. Then we're told in verse 17 that every Christian in the world at that time will then be caught up or they'll be raptured uh, into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And that word, those two words in the English, caught up in most English translations of the Bible, uh, that is the, the two words that speak of the rapture. And it carries the idea of being snatched up. That's what the word means in the original language. And it me has the idea of to being seized suddenly, being pulled out with great power. Sometimes people say, well, I'll wait until the rapture and then I'll give my life to the Lord. Now, it'll, it'll be over so fast you won't even have time 
time to uh, do anything. It's, it's going to be very quick and very, very powerful. One moment we're going to be doing whatever we're doing at that moment, and then the next moment we're going to be face to face with the Lord uh, in the air. That is in that space between uh, heaven itself, the third heaven, uh, the abiding place of God, and then the earth. Now, sometimes when you talk about the rapture, People will say, well, you know, I looked up the word rapture in my Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, and I did, and it's not even listed in the Bible. And the reason you couldn't find the word rapture in the Bible is because you're reading an English Bible. If you uh, read the Latin Vulgate, if you read it in the uh, Latin uh, language, you would find it there in the place of, you'd find the Latin word rapturo in the place of caught up there in our passage in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. So caught up in English, rapturo in Latin, and then the Greek word is harpazo. So I do like the fact that, I don't know when it happened in church history, but this became known as the rapture as opposed to the harpazo. Rapture like sounds like what it is, doesn't it? Harpazo sounds like something you put on a salad at the salad bar at Sizzler. I'll put a few garbanzos on the salad. I'll sprinkle a few harpazos and then a little olive oil and vinegar, and voila, we've got a great salad. Harpazo sounds slow. It just sounds like we're going to go up in a hot air balloon. I think we're in the middle of the harpazo right now, you know. We are being harpazo. No, rapturo was the right word to call it by because it, it meets the energy, the excitement of, of what it is that's going on. And then notice in verse 17 that from that time forward, we will always be with the Lord, never separated from him ever again. And then notice further in verse 18 that the rapture of the church is to be a comfort to us as Christians. The fact of this great future historical event is to be a comfort for each of us as Christians. And as we see things uh, perhaps grow worse and worse in the world and more and more deserving of, of God's judgment, we know that he will take us to be with him uh, before he pours out his uh, wrath. And so as we watch it today, we are to encourage one another. We watch the world in its condition. We see that where it's trending and so forth and, uh, and how much is uh, getting out from uh, under the hands of law enforcement and so forth and, and the moral collapse of not only in the United States, but in the whole world and all. And as we look at these things, we're to remind uh, one another that, hey, the Lord could come back at any time. He's coming back for us. Let's stay busy about his business while uh, we wait for him. I had, when I was a new Christian, the, there was a pastor at the Calvary Chapel, Napa, and his name was Larry Anderson. He's home to be with the Lord now. And and he was a very good man and became a friend. And I would come up to him after like a Sunday night or a Wednesday night service. And I was always kind of afflicted with a terminal case of the ain't it awfuls, you know. And, and I'd tell him this and tell him that. And Larry would patiently listen to everything I was saying. And then he would just say, you know, the, Lord could, the Lord's coming back. Or the Lord could come back tonight. And it would put all of it right into perspective. And the Lord is returning for us at any time. And it would immediately comfort my heart. And that's what it's intended to do in all of our lives. It will be a comfort. I do think when he mentions there in verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words, the knowledge of the rapture of the church. I do think that when that happens in human history, that only the return of the Lord for the church will provide us with comfort. I think that the circumstances will be such. Paul doesn't write here, and comfort one another with these words and the next presidential election, or how the Dow Jones is doing, or anything else. These words alone, this hope, will be the only comfort that we will have in the face of what we're witnessing in the world as God's people. Now, the, this belief in the rapture, this looking forward to the rapture, uh, 
It is a very, very, uh, has a very healthy a spiritual influence upon our lives, that expectation that Jesus could come back uh, at any time and rapture us, it does something very, very good inside of us as Christians. And one of the things that it does is it, it produces this excitement. It produces a, a certain quality of disciple, this great truth of the rapture of the church, that this is coming. It has been a very, very important part of my Christian life, and I'm thankful for it. And uh, on most every day when I pray, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when I'm praying that, I am reminded that I am praying for the rapture of the church, among other things, and that it could happen today. And it does something healthy and uh, very, very good inside of me. And I'm thankful for that influence that this has had from the very beginning of my Christian life. And I'm thankful for the fact that it has that same kind of influence. At least it's my hope uh, in, among those that I pastor. This uh, end times is disappearing as an emphasis in, in Christianity in our country. Uh, there are fewer and fewer people talking about it, uh, fewer and fewer people studying it. Uh, the rapture of the church is a, a part of the casualty of that. And I think it's very, very sad because of what I know it brings to my life and what the Bible says it brings to our lives uh, as Christians in, uh, in very, very uh, important things. Usually, it, you know, there's the... There's the idea that, well, you believe in the rapture and so forth because, you know, you, you only want to escape uh, the wrath that's coming. You're a chicken. You don't want to go through the great tribulation. Well, listen, uh, if the rapture didn't do anything more than that, I'd be happy with that. I, I, I've never been in the military. And uh, they ended the draft the year before I was a senior in high school for Vietnam. I would have gone if they'd have drafted me. But I, I've never been in a war, so I'm a bit of a poser, but I've read a lot of military history and a lot on World War II and so forth through the ages and all. And what is going to happen in that period as I read the book of Revelation, and remember in World War II, 90 million people died. 90 million people died in that war. When you talk about uh, soldiers, you talk about military, you talk about civilians all around the world. And, and yet, that was not God's wrath. In the great tribulation period, it's going to be awful. And so when people say, listen, you guys are just trying to escape. Yes, sirree, I am trying to escape. I am eager to escape. There is nothing about chapters 6 through 19 in the book of Revelation that I want to have an experiential knowledge uh, of. That period will be worse than all of the worst of human history, all rolled uh, together. And no, I don't want to uh, be here. But the expectation of the rapture also produces other very needed things within our lives as well. Number one, it's a great influence for a pure life because we don't want to be found at the time of the rapture in a backslidden state as a Christian or being, find ourselves engaged in some kind of sin. Uh, John wrote this in his third epistle. He said, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and yet it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he, that is Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope, the hope of the rapture, everyone who has this hope in him, that is in Jesus, purifies himself just as he, that is Jesus, is pure. And it has a purifying effect within our lives. I don't want the rapture to occur if, when I'm backslidden. I don't want to, uh, the rapture to occur when I, if I find myself in some kind of a compromised uh, situation related to sin. Uh, many years ago, I was listening to a series of uh, pastor's conference tapes that came out of Colorado and they were speaking on the rapture and end times. And 
And they, in this particular conference, they used to get people that believed on one side of the issue and then on the other side of the issue, and they would each get up and do their different sermons and so forth and, and try to hash the whole thing out. And I remember uh, one of the speakers got up and he began to put down and uh, make fun of the idea of, you know, people thinking about the rapture before they would enter into a theater to watch, uh, to have that factor into the quality of movie that they might be watching there and uh, considering whether they might want to be found watching that movie at the time of the rapture. And he made this whole idea sound legalistic and, and uh, foolish. The next speaker got up, and he's a good friend of mine, and uh, he got up and he said exactly what I would have wanted to say, and that is, what's so bad about that? I think that every influence for holiness or purity and especially as the end of the age approaches, is a good thing. And the rapture provides a needed influence for holy living. Second, it produces a needed urgency in our life concerning Christian service and concerning the Great Commission. The realization that my opportunity to share the gospel with friends, with family, with neighbors, with others, that that is a very finite opportunity and could be gone in an instant. And I want everybody to know the gospel. And it lights that fire under us. Otherwise, a lot of us would go to sleep to all of this if that fire wasn't lit. It also keeps us a sense of urgency related to our Christian service so that we're not on some kind of a sabbatical when uh, the Lord comes back, but when he finds us watching and waiting and engaged in his calling upon our lives. And then third, as we've already noticed, this rapture is to be a source of great comfort in our lives as Christians as we watch the world uh, grow worse and worse. So it isn't just this escape plan, as open as I am to that, from the great tribulation, but it accomplishes something important in our lives between now and the time of the rapture. Now, I believe that the rapture is going to occur prior to uh, the tribulation period. And there are three principal views related to all of this, the timing of the rapture. I'm going to lose some of you. You say, you're going to lose me. You lost me a long time ago. I'm going to lose a few more of you at this point. But it's an important part of, of the subject that we're looking at. There are three views related to the rapture, dominant views in the body of Christ. One is a post-tribulation view related to the rapture. They believe that the rapture occurs at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, uh, at, uh, virtually at the time of Jesus' second coming. Then there is a mid-trib view, uh, tribulation rapture view, and also known as a pre-wrath rapture view, and they believe that the rapture is going to occur uh, associated or immediately upon the Antichrist uh, uh, d performing the abomination that causes desolation that happens at the halfway point of the seven-year tribulation uh, period. And that from that halfway point, things really do start to get uh, very, very bad in the world in terms of judgment. And so that's their view. And then there are those of us who believe that the Bible teaches that uh, Christians are going to be raptured prior to the entire seven-year uh, tribulation period, and this is known as a pre-tribulation rapture view. I'm very much a pre-tribulation -trib, uh, rapture guy. I uh, once heard a speaker many years ago speak about this, and he said, I'm so pre-trib, I won't eat post-toasties. And that's kind of how I feel uh, about it. But not, not just because I've been, been indoctrinated related to this. I have spent an awful lot of time looking at the subject through the years in order to be fair with the Scriptures. It doesn't mean that people that hold a different view than I, than I have haven't spent equal time and been equally in earnest in it. But this is how it all just kind of lands uh, for me. So it isn't a subject that we want to break fellowship with, uh, uh, with another Christian over. But what we believe on this issue is very, very important nonetheless. 
And there's the old joke in this vein where uh, one man tells another man, another Christian, he says, I'm not premillennial, I'm not postmillennial, I'm panmillennial. I believe that everything pans out in the end. And there is a sense in which everything does pan out in the end. But what we believe on this is not inconsequential because it will determine how we view and how we interpret huge sections of the Word of God, certainly virtually the entire book of Revelation, uh, fully one half of the book of Daniel, large sections of Ezekiel, uh, also large sections of Isaiah, into the New Testament, the Olivet Discourse and Matthew's Gospel, and then First and Second Thessalonians, and so forth. It, it makes a big difference what we believe on this issue and how we interpret the Scriptures uh, as, a well, and, as well. And so I uh, certainly respect other people's rights to believe what they want on this issue, but I am pre-trib, and, I, and you have heard it all the way through the series, maybe even grading on some of you. You've been patient with me on it, but I want to just give a handful of reasons for why before we close here this morning. The Great Tribulation, number one, is a time when God's wrath is poured out on a Christ-rejecting, rebellious world. But the Bible teaches very clearly that as Christians, we are not appointed to God's wrath. And it's important to understand that in the tribulation period, we're talking about God's wrath. Jesus declared to us as Christians, in the world you will have tribulation, we will have troubles, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The difference between the tribulations that we face as Christians in this life is that the tribulations that we face have their source in the world and the flesh and the devil. It is not God's wrath that's being meted out against us. And so uh, in chapters 8 through 16 of Revelation, you have God's wrath being poured out upon the world. Again, Revelation chapter 6, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, that is the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for, great, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand. Now, that's an interesting phrase, the wrath of the Lamb. What do you got to do to tick off a lamb? What do you got to do to tick off, in a sanctified sense, uh, Jesus, who came into the world in his first coming to provide salvation? And yet, the world is in the middle of doing it, and one day they will have accomplished it fully. The Bible teaches very clearly that as Christians, we are not appointed to wrath in Romans chapter 5, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so sometimes uh, people will look and say, well, um, we will not incur God's wrath because as Christians, uh, a post-tribulation view, some will say we're in the tribulation, but God puts a special seal upon us, or they'll even identify Christians with 144,000 in the book of Revelation. But the 144,000 are 144,000 male virgin Jews. They're the only ones that get protected in, in those plagues that are being unleashed. So unless you are a male virgin Jew this morning, uh, you don't meet the criteria. And one of the things that I don't like about some of the post-tribulation view is the necessity to spiritualize so much of the book of Revelation in order to hold the view. 
And I'm not comfortable with that, especially given the warning at the end of the book not to change or take away or to add from the book. So I don't like spiritualizing uh, the book. I like the Old Testament to, um, to do that. So we are not appointed uh, to wrath. And so we have to be gone from the earth and my understanding of the Scriptures before Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6 is where the seals begin to be uh, opened, the seven seals of judgment. And each of those seven seals consists of the wrath of God. The very verse, first seal that is broken is the revelation of the Antichrist. He represents the beginning of the wrath of God. This is where I disagree with pre-wrath or I disagree with mid-trib uh, uh, rapture where they look and rightly understand that probably the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, the seven years, is going to go wonderfully. Uh, the Antichrist is going to cause the world to prosper. It's going to be terrific. And then he does the abomination that causes desolation, and then all kinds of things begin to break loose after that as God in earnest begins to pour his judgment out. But it doesn't change the fact that the Antichrist, for all of the three, first three and a half years still represents the wrath of God. He still is unleashed as a, as a part of God's wrath and his judgment, even though he goes forth in the first three and a half years and the wrath is being expressed in his ability then to deceive the whole earth. Now, Jesus' promise in this regard to the church of Philadelphia, one of the seven churches that he wrote to in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, and Philadelphia is a great church, uh, you know, one of the two best churches of the seven churches. And what Jesus spoke to that church is consistent with a pre-tribulation rapture view. Because in chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus declares to the church, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from, and that's a very significant word, and the word in the original language means from, I will keep you from, from what? From the hour, and both pre-tribulation rapturous and post-tribulation rapturous both recognize that this is talking about uh, the uh, tribulation uh, period and having to do with the rapture. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. And so it would have been very, very easy for Jesus in speaking to that particular church of Philadelphia for him to say that he was going to, and I also will keep you through the hour of trial. But he doesn't do that. That's not the word that he uses. And he has quite a vocabulary. He tells them he's going to keep them from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. And the word from means free from, completely independent of. Now, second, the purpose of the great tribulation, uh, the tribulation period has, in my understanding, is primarily to do with Israel, not with the church. And, in, and this is where a lot of the uh, confusion lies in all of this. The post-tribulation view frequently confuses the program of God for Israel with the program of God for the church, and there's confusion on that issue. And, but in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, the great tribulation is called the time of McGillicuddy's trouble or the time of Chavez's trouble. No, it isn't. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And Jacob was the father of the 12 patriarchs, 12 sons who became the head of the 12 tribes of Israel. He represents the Jewish people and the nation of, of Israel. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, it was revealed to Daniel by an angelic messenger that 77s, or 77-year uh, periods are determined upon Daniel's people. Who were Daniel's people? Everybody knows Daniel was Russian. Well, Russian in part English. No, everybody knows that Daniel was Jewish. 
And so 77s are determined upon your people, the Jews, including the 70th seven-year period, which speaks of the seven-year tribulation period. And so the tribulation period is not about Christians. It's not about the church. It's about the Jews supremely, and they're coming to recognize Jesus as their promised Messiah. When Jesus speaks of the great tribulation in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, he does so not in the context of the church, but in the context, or or in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 30, when he speaks of that great tribulation, which is that part that he's addressing and that part of the Olivet Discourse, he does so in the context of Jews. Let me read a portion of it to you. He said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those of you who are in Stanislaus County flee to the mountains. No, it doesn't. He says, let those of you who are in Judea. Judea is the region of Israel in which uh, Jerusalem sits, which is where the abomination of desolation is going to occur. It is in Jewish hands. It is populated by Jews. And so, he says, when you see that abomination of uh, desolation uh, spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of the house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those uh, with nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Again, we're on Jewish ground. Christians have no concern in terms of the distance that we travel on the Sabbath. The Sabbath has been fulfilled for us in Christ. Again, he's talking in the context of Jews. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And a lot of the confusion, I believe, that fuels a lot of Uh, This is the belief that among Christians, and this is increasing uh, in in this hour, that God is done with the Jews and that the church has replaced the Jews in God's plan. This is known as replacement theology, but it isn't true. God is not yet done with the Jews. Romans chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, I say then, Paul declares, as a Jew, has God cast away his people, speaking of the Jews? Certainly not, for, if, for I am also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. God is not through with the nation of Israel. There is one more seven-year period coming in, uh, in her uh, coming to recognize Jesus as her Messiah. Now, the post-tribulation view does not allow, in my mind, for the teaching of the imminence of the rapture uh, as, it, as it is described in the Scriptures. That is, that the rapture could happen at any moment. And according to the post-tribulation view, it can't happen at any time. Uh, because we're still waiting for the tribulation period, and we would still be waiting for the unveiling of the Antichrist. Jesus can't uh, come back until, uh, in their view, until uh, the end of the tribulation period. So according to that teaching, Jesus couldn't come back uh, today because the Antichrist has not established his kingdom in the world. And so I look at it and I wonder, what in the world do we do then with Paul's exhortation Uh, again to the church at Thessalonica. And he said, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, chapter 5, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes so as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the light nor of darkness, and therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober, waiting for the return of the Lord is what he's talking about. And so... 
There's no need practically to be watching and waiting for the Lord's return under a post-tribulation view, but rather for the great tribu- uh, but rather for the great tribulation. And this is how, uh, though this imminence that this event could happen at any time, is how the rapture is handled all the way through First uh, Thessalonians and the first century. Uh, Christians uh, were not looking for the Antichrist, but looking for Jesus Christ to return at any moment. Or there are those passages that Jesus uh, describes in his exhortation in, in the, concerning watching and waiting and the, his Olivet Discourse that have to do with the end of the age in Matthew, uh, Matthew's Gospel in chapter 24. Verse 42, Jesus said, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Again, verse 44, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. He's saying, Watch, you don't know when he's coming, you need to be ready. Jesus, in his preaching of the parable of the ten virgins, he declared in chapter 25 of Matthew, Watch therefore, for you do, you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And a post-tribulation view would make that exhortation of Jesus to be uh, empty, at least at this point in, in church history. Now, this creates a real problem, I think, for the post-tribulation position, because in the post-tribulation view, the rapture occurs basically at the same time as the second coming. In that view, Jesus returns for the rapture of the church, raptures us up, and then immediately, in virtually the same event, then returns to the earth in the second coming. They're essentially two parts of one event. But as Daniel the prophet was told in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, he said, uh, he was told, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. In other words, from the time that that abomination of desolation occurs at the midpoint of the tribulation period with the Antichrist, you can begin to mark on a calendar over the period of three and a half years, 1,290 days, and then you have the date of Jesus' second coming. And if the rapture of the church occurs at the same time of the second coming, then there is no imminence related to the event. So I fail to see where Eminence can survive in a post-tribulation rapture view when we know from Daniel's prophecy the date of the second coming uh, as it would be dated from the abomination that causes uh, desolation. And it is that eminence then is lost, that eminence that uh, marks the rapture throughout the New Testament. To me, the only, only the pre-tribulation rapture allows for the rapture to be an imminent daily expectation. A couple more things and then I'll let you go. I know I'm holding you over, and, and, but I want to con- conclude this uh, for all of the, the prophecy eggheads uh, in the room. In the passages in front of us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, the rapture of the church is clearly intended to be a comfort to Christians. And I I personally fail to see how the idea that I'm going to go through the great tribulation and then the Lord is going to come and snatch me out of this world after it's all over and there's really nothing left to really rescue me from, how that can be understood as a comfort. I don't see how going through the great tribulation uh, can be viewed as a comfort in, in any way. And then additionally and finally, I can't help but Uh, be impacted by how closely the common traditions associated with Jewish weddings at the time of Jesus' public ministry and at the time of the writing of the New Testament, that how all of that parallels the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Remember, Paul wrote to an audience uh, Jesus declared these things in terms of the ten virgins and so forth to an audience, to a context, to a Jewish uh, context. 
In our culture, uh, weddings and wedding ceremonies are basically that. They're a ceremony that covers several hours. It's wonderful. Everybody leaves. The bride and groom go on their honeymoon. It's been a great few hours, but that's all that it is. In a Jewish wedding ceremony, it's very, very different. In fact, you can't really call it a ceremony. It's more of a progression than a ceremony because it was a progression of, of many, many events. In the Jewish wedding ceremony, first there was a betrothal, which always involved three steps. First, the prospective groom would travel from his father's house to the house of the prospective bride. And then, second, he would pay the purchase price for his bride. And then third, in doing so, he would establish the wedding covenant or commitment. Jesus did this in his first coming. He came from heaven to this earth. He purchased the church with his blood. And then we are now betrothed to him as a chaste virgin, as Paul puts it, one day to become his bride. The second part of the progression of a Jewish uh, wedding is that the groom would then return to his father's house where he would remain separate from his betrothed and he would spend his time preparing the living accommodations at his father's house for his future bride. And that's what Jesus is doing uh, right now. As he told us, I go to prepare a place for you in John chapter 14. Third part of the progression is that having prepared a place for his bride in his father's house, the groom would then return to receive his bride and take her home with him. But he did not know the time that he uh, would do that. It was never known to the bride. It was never known to the groom. It was always the father who decided when everything was ready, and then only he knew the timing and then gave the permission. And thus the bride of Christ, the bride in that Jewish wedding, she always had to be ready. She had to keep oil in her lamp in case the groom was sent in the middle of the night. And that's why we're repeatedly told in the scripture by Jesus to be watching and waiting for his return because we do not know the day or the hour of the rapture. And then finally, the groom would come to her and then return with her back to his father's house. They would then consummate the marriage and celebrate the wedding feast. And the wedding feast would then last seven days, which corresponds wonderfully to the seven-year tribulation period. During that time, the bride would remain hidden from everybody else in her bridal chamber. Heaven is going to constitute our bridal chamber during the tribulation period, and then after that, she would be brought forth and presented with her husband, even as we will be with Jesus at his second coming. The pre-tribulation rapture, to me, is just this perfect match to the Jewish culture that Jesus spoke to concerning marriage and the wedding progression. And it is how they would have listened. It is how they would have naturally understood it. I think about how wonderful it is now as I close to be able to live in the midst of all of the seemingly uncertainty of this world on a national level, on an international level, the seeming uncertainty of the world on a personal level, and to do so with the knowledge that at any time we may hear a shout and a trump and be taken into heaven to be with Jesus, and then to escape the judgment that is coming upon this earth. I remember one time seeing a man get up to speak, and he was going to be speaking on end times, and he's opening remarks to this audience uh, his opening remark was, is there any problem in your life tonight that wouldn't be solved by the rapture? And everybody laughed because everybody knew there is no problem in our life that will not ultimately be uh, taken care of and solved by the rapture. It really is a blessed hope. And it really is a comfort. And it provides us with a hope and it provides us with a comfort. 
that only God knows how much we'll need as we continue to live for him and serve him at the age that he's called us to do so. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, you tell us that you see our lives as a tale that's been told. There are no surprises for you. There's no anticipation for you. And everything's a surprise to us. And we thank you as you are able to look down all the way through the accomplishment of everything that you have promised is going to come to pass. And to know from your Father's heart that we would need in the midst of all that is coming a blessed hope and a deep and immovable comfort in our hearts, the knowledge of Jesus' return to remove us from this world before your judgment is righteously poured out upon it. Thank you that we are able to live as we do, as the bride of Christ in our pilgrimage, and that we are able to join with the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us in declaring Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and to cry out to you, Maranatha, come quickly. Thank you for that hope, Lord. Thank you for what it produces inside of us, in our lives as Christians. Thank you for blessing us with it and blessing our time and studying it this morning. I pray, Lord, that even though some of this has been a little cumbersome and over the heads of some within the room. I pray, Lord, that you would give it a place of permanence in each one of our lives so that as history does unfold, this can be everything you want it to be in each of our lives and that we will need it to be. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name.